Genesis 6, 9, down to chapter 9, verse 17. And before we read various portions of this, let me pray for us again and ask the Lord to be present with us. Father, again, we look to you as the God who has spoken, the God who spoke the world into existence and upholds all things by the word of your power. And we look to you as to the God who has spoken both warnings and promises, the God who is the God of judgment and salvation. We pray this morning that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. We pray that Christ would be exalted. We pray that you would draw us into deeper communion with each member of the Godhead. We pray that you would press upon us all that you want us to learn, our God. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you have sent men to preach your word. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word as you have promised to do. We pray that we would hear Christ and see him and love him and trust him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 9, and uh, as we've noted, everything in the Genesis account from chapter uh, 5 and following is really moving to this period, this epoch of Noah, and is focusing on what God is doing at this epoch with Noah. And you'll notice that at the end of chapter 5, that genealogy, it ended with Noah. And then, as we saw last week, the intermarriage of the covenant line with um, the, the descendants of Cain, the pagan women on the earth, and the, the, the loss of um, truth and the gospel, except that God, notice verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 8, God had sovereign mercy and grace on Noah. We're told Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was very corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. Its length, the length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it into a cubit above. And set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with a lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you, to keep them alive and take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 
and then skip down to verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal, and creeping thing and birds of the heavens. And then chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah and all the beasts. And all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep closed, the windows of heaven were closed, the rain from heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, The tops of the mountains were seen. And then skip down to verse 16. Go out of the ark. The Lord said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And then chapter 9, verse 1. God bless Noah. And his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and of all the fish of the sea into their hands. They shall be delivered. And then verse eight, God said to Noah and to his sons, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I have set my bow In the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, you might think if you entered the homes of most Christians who had young children and you looked on the walls in the rooms of the very young children in Christian homes, at least in Western civilization, you might think that the story of Noah and the flood is just a nice children's story because we love to hang the pictures, we love to hang the illustrations, we love to have the little stuffed animal ark with the animals coming off the ark and the little window opening and the ray of sunshine with the rainbow coming out. We love, we love the story of Noah and the flood for little children. And it is a story for little children, isn't it? Until we step back and we realize that it is a story for us. And that contained in the narrative in Genesis 6 through 9 is the totality of God's 
plan and purpose in redemptive history and what is encapsulated in the totality of what God tells us in Genesis 6 to 9 is the planning and the purposes of God and the foreshadowing of the future judgment and the foreshadowing of the new creation and everything in the ark in one way or another is playing into God's plan of salvation and what we see for the first time in scripture and what we have from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9 is sort of a cliff notes of the totality of the scripture. It is sort of the beginning and the end and telling us that everything else that happens in the scripture, everything else that God tells us is already been told in Genesis 1 through 9. And what we have is a prelude. We have a prelude to everything else in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And what we have, and the really important thing that we want to see this morning is that this is the first instance in the scriptures of God's salvation through judgment. It is salvation through judgment. That is the way that God will work in the gospel. It will be salvation through judgment. This is the first. There are others. Sodom and Gomorrah was one such salvation through judgment. Lot and his wife would be delivered by salvation through judgment. God was everywhere typifying that the way of salvation would be the way of salvation through judgment. And so very basically, we can divide this up and consider those two categories. And we're going to see this morning, first, the judgment. And then secondly, we're going to see the salvation. Well, the judgment has been predicted. You'll see there in Genesis 6 that we're told the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, verse 5, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have made. Every living thing I will blot out from the earth. God has predicted judgment. God has predicted that it would come in about 120 years from when he predicted it. He gave men a period of time to hear the prediction of the judgment and to repent. This is one of that, those big things where God wants you to understand why does he say that his spirit would not strive with man forever because he's flesh, but that it would be 120 years and then judgment except that God was holding out to a world that had rejected him. He was holding out to them the reality of a forthcoming judgment. He was holding out to them the certainty of a forthcoming judgment. He was holding out to them the fact that he would wipe out every living thing that moved, and yet God was predicting it so that man would repent and would turn, would believe God's word, would embrace it. He was holding it out by his word. You know, it's very interesting that Noah... It's called a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament that no doubt Noah was preaching the forthcoming judgment so that the men and the women and the boys and the girls on the face of the earth would hear and they would believe and they would turn and they would know the same redemption that Noah would experience. Noah wasn't a self-righteous preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was saying there is a way of righteousness, there is a gospel, there is a redeemer, that God has made a way of salvation, that though judgment is imminent and is pending and is inescapable, no matter what men think, they learned that it was inescapable. They learned that. They experientially learned the inescapable nature of the pending judgment of God. And yet, Noah, by word, was both warning and holding out the gospel to them. They were also 
learning about this judgment and being warned about this judgment by seeing Noah acting in faith. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and it's, it's almost, in my, in my thinking, it is, it is as great an act of faith as Abraham offering up Isaac that Noah spent so many years of his life building a, really a temple. The ark is really the temple. It, it looks more like a house than a boat. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It has a roof and a window and a door. It's the temple. It's got three layers, just like the temple. It rests on a mountain later, just like Eden. The temple was on the mountain, and later the temple that Solomon built was on the mountain. And Noah single-handedly, perhaps with the help of his sons, built a building five times the size of this building, over 100,000 square feet. And spent his life and spent his money and spent his time and spent his energy building that. What an indictment to us who don't want to do the least amount of things for the Lord. What an indictment that here was a man trusting in the redemption to come, walking by faith, not seeing the judgment to come, never having seen a worldwide flood, never having seen God wipe out the totality of the inhabitants of the earth, And yet God had said, here's what I want you to do, Noah. Here's the way of salvation. Here's the way that you will escape. And Noah, in faith, spent his life before a watching world. And I can imagine the the mocking and the the jeering and the, the scorn that Noah received and the men and the women of the world getting drunk and mocking him and 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 reviling him and that he was i am sure in all corners of the earth at that time he was the butt of all jokes on the face of the earth and yet he by building that ark was telling a a wicked and perishing world that god was going to send judgment and they had all the warnings they heard it just like men and women today hear that christ is coming again and as we confess this morning we say we believe it that he will judge the living and the dead. And just like men and women hear today in the Christian gospel that God is going to send his son in power and glory to judge the world, and yet the greater part of the world and even the greater part of people in churches don't respond in faith and don't live as men and women of faith. And they hear the warnings and they see the threatenings, they hear the word of God and they reject it. You know, it's ignored. The judgment is ignored. It's really interesting to me that when the Lord is telling us about the wickedness of men on the earth at this time, and that's really an indictment against us by nature, we have the same hearts. Every thought of the imagination of their hearts was only wicked continually. And yet the real depravity of man, and this is so important, the real depravity of man is seen in his indifference to the prediction to forthcoming judgment. You know, if I asked you, what does a depraved life look like? You might say, oh, you know, drug addiction, murder, sexual immorality. Really, the great, the great indictment against man is his indifference to the prediction of divine judgment. It is man rejecting the word of God. It is man saying, the God who has made me has not said that I'm accountable to him. The God who has made me has not said that one day there will be a judgment on a world that has turned their back to him. The God who has made me is a liar. That is the, the greatest exhibition of the depravity of man's heart that's outlined for us in Genesis 6, 5, is the indifference that he shows to the prediction of the forthcoming judgment. Now, here's the really interesting thing. That is not just the exhibition of the depravity of man. It is also part of the judgment on man. 
And you might say, wait a minute, what do you mean? I thought the flood was the judgment. Actually, the flood is the culmination of the judgment. The judgment begins with man ignoring the calls to repent and to turn and to trust in a redeemer. The judgment begins in the ignorance and the blindness of the hearts of men and the indifference. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson puts this. He says, it's the way in which we are free to scoff him and live in this godless way that is the judgment. We live in a world where people say exactly the kind of thing about the Christian gospel and the Christian church as they were in Noah's day. Look at the way we're living and we get off scot-free. There are no thunderbolts from heaven. But the real sign of God's judgment is not the externals. The real sign of God's judgment is that he has said, if that's the way you wish to live, then live without me you shall and die without me too. That's the judgment. God has said, if you want to live without me, then you will live without me. If you want to turn your heart and harden your heart against me, then I will harden your heart irreversibly and you will live without me and you will die without me. And you will perish because you have wanted to live and die without me. And really what the flood is, is a rejection of seeing God as the greatest joy and the most satisfying portion of the soul of man, that the living God who is full of bounty and goodness and, and, and showed, as we saw in the creation account, how full of goodness he was, that man has said, no, we will live for self. We will make ourselves God. And the world was filled with Men and women, in the words of John Calvin, whose hearts were an idol-making factory. And so the judgment was warned. The judgment was ignored. Peter picks up on the, the narrative, and that's really what he drives home. He picks up on the flood narrative, and he says, even to this day, men are saying, where's the promise of his coming? Since the creation of the world, everything continues the way it was. Where's the promise of his coming? And and Peter says, oh, don't be so foolish. Don't be like the men and the women of the world in Noah's day. Our Lord Jesus uses that as an example. He actually, very interesting, when Jesus speaks about the, the wickedness of the inhabitants of the earth in the days of Noah, he doesn't say they destroyed and they raped and they murdered and they, they did all these really dark, wicked things. He said they ate, they drank. They married, they were given in marriage till the day that the flood came and overtook them all. They just carried on with their lives as if God didn't exist, as if it was about their jobs, and if, as it was, if it was about food and clothing and marriage and the experiences of life and everything was just fine, and they just carried on with their lives. And that was the judgment of God. That was part of the judgment. And yet... We see that the judgment of God culminates in God giving man what he wants. You know, that's one of the things we often don't think about, that the flood is really God giving man what he wanted. You might say, wait a minute, I don't want judgment. What are you talking about? That's not what, what who wanted, nobody wants judgment. No, they didn't want God. They didn't want God. I got to read this to you. I I have never thought about this before. And this is so profound. Um, essentially what the flood is is God saying the word by which I created the world out of the waters he spoke it into existence and the word by which he upholds the world the writer of Hebrews tells us he upholds all things by the word of his power 
is the same word by which he warned the men and women in the days of Noah. And because they rejected his word, he said, fine, then I will remove my word. And essentially, in removing my word, it will be creation come undone. That I will remove my word because you don't want my word. You won't know the blessing of my word. You won't know the restraining blessing of my word. You won't know the upholding power of my word. Because you don't want my word, the Lord removes his word. And you have these intimations, don't you? You have these intimations in the narrative that take us back to Genesis 1 and 2. I want to read something to you that one theologian wrote. He said, the judgment fits the crime perfectly. The sin here is the heart rejection of the word of God and the judgment, interestingly, perfectly matches it. And the narrative underlines it. If we can be sensitive to it for a moment and remember these opening chapters of Genesis, you'll notice that the description of what will happen to the heavens and the earth and to the created order uses the very language that is used in Genesis 1 and 2 to describe how the entire created order came into being. And so God is saying, my powerful word has brought this world into being and keeps this world in place, but you are rejecting my powerful word of warning and therefore I will remove it from you and this world will begin as it were to cave in on itself and, and disintegrate. And the very same phrases, the same language, the same verbs are used here as are used in Genesis 1 and 2. The judgment of the flood is actually a picture of creation going into disintegration. Remember, as the Bible opens and God separates the waters and dry land appears and then life comes and plants and trees and herbs and, and seed bearing herbs and and, and then God creates living creatures, and he, he fills the seas with fish and swarming creatures, and he fills the skies with birds, and, and, and he puts the heavenly bodies in the sky, and he, he shows his blessing. He separates the waters, and he creates by his word a world full of goodness and beauty and bounty. And, and if you don't believe that, I dare you to step out today and to see the sun and to feel the warmth and to eat food that you enjoy and to enjoy fellowship with other people and not see that that is full, still full in this fallen world of goodness and blessing. And God was essentially undoing covenant blessing at the flood. He was, he was destroying what man had taken and worshipped with what man had taken and worshipped. Man had worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And God essentially says, if you want to worship the creature rather than the creator, then I will allow the creation itself to destroy you. I will remove my word and I will allow what you have wanted to worship to destroy you. And that's the way it is with all sin, isn't it? All sin, the punishment always fits the crime. Men and women want to give themselves over to sexual immorality and so it attacks their bodies and it affects them and it wastes away their beauty and it takes away the goodness. The very thing that they love the most destroys them. And so while men bicker over whether this is mythological or historical, as we dig down and we probe and we see what God's doing, we understand very clearly that this is very word of very true word of God. And that what God is doing is saying, I will give you the very thing that you want. You know, um, I was reminded of a saying I heard many years ago this past week. Um, as I think about the cosmic judgment of God and I think about the warnings of God and I think about the rejection, just the ignorance, the, just sort of the, the careless going through life and not wanting to hear these things and wanting to just reject these things. And, and it shows in our commitments and it shows in our, um, it shows in our actions and our activities. And um, I was reminded of those words 
and I'm not sure who first said them, but um, the saying is something like, most people will die with or without the faith with which they lived. That God gave the men and the women on the earth time to repent. But most people will die with or without the faith with which they lived. And here we see, secondly, when we come to consider salvation now, we see that there were only eight. And of those eight, maybe seven believed. We know that Ham was cursed. We know that Ham was an unbeliever. And yet God redeems the covenant family. He redeems Noah and his children. He gives them typological salvation. And we see that of all the people on the face of the earth, and I assume, very interesting thought, I assume that that over 100,000 square foot temple that God was going to protect and save everyone who was in there with him, and he was going to preserve the cosmos in and the new creation in and the redeemer in the loins of Noah in, that that was big enough to hold the inhabitants of the earth at that time. That if they had been willing to repent and turn, if they had been willing to believe and, and turn to God and confess their need for redemption, because that's what Noah does. Noah steps off of that ark and he sacrifices He's saying, I need a redeemer. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. He acknowledges he needs his heart cleansed. He needs his sin forgiven. And yet, of all the people on the face of the earth that could have filled that that ark temple, only eight go in and only eight come out. And the only one we're ever told that had faith was Noah. And so as we see the salvation... Of Noah, and as we consider what God has done here, we see that that salvation had been offered to him. Noah had heard the promises. He had heard the warnings. He knew what he deserved. He knew the judgment he deserved. Everything that we read in the scriptures, while we have it so much more fleshed out and developed and fuller light, Noah had the fundamentals of everything necessary for salvation offered to him. And, and we saw that it was by grace. Verse 8 of chapter 6, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God saved Noah by grace. God didn't save Noah because he was righteous. He, he gave him grace and mercy and made him a righteous man. He, he transformed Noah's life. He enabled Noah to live righteously in the midst of a hostile society. You know, I often think about the way we make excuses about why we're not doing better spiritually. And we love to blame externals. We love to blame other people if... If this hardship wasn't in my life, if this trial wasn't in my life, if this person wasn't in my life, if this situation wasn't in my life, I'd be doing better. Noah had everything against him. Noah had everything against him, but he had the grace of God. He had faith in Jesus Christ, the coming Redeemer. He, he believed God's word, and he responded. And what we see, what we see, and the flood narrative teaches us this very fundamental principle about God's salvation is that while it is offered, and while it is by grace, and while it is by faith, um, we see that it is only to a remnant. Now, that theme will run through the scriptures. Why wasn't all of Israel saved? Most of Israel wasn't redeemed. Most of Israel perished. Why will not everyone in visible churches today be redeemed? Because it is only a remnant. They're not all Israel who are of Israel. They're not all children because of the offspring. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. God says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 says, even at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. The first thing that we see about salvation is that God saves a remnant. Um, 
I think that should make us step back and reflect. Um, the Apostle Peter will say, if the righteous are scarcely saved. You know, I, I, one of the things that bother me the most about the church in America is that it's so trite. It's just trite. Most of us are trite. We have a very, very light view of God and of salvation and of our lives. We have a very light view. There's nothing light. There's nothing light about the scriptures. There's nothing light about salvation. There's nothing light about impending judgment. There is a day of judgment coming, and there's nothing light about that. Most of us have far too low a view of the weightiness, and that only a remnant are redeemed. But notice also that this salvation was specified by God. It was God's intention. God told Noah all of the specifics about the ark, everything he was to do in order to be saved. Now, we don't like to say that. We say, wait, it's not about what I do. It's, what about, it's, it's about what Christ did. That's right. It's about what Christ did. But we are to respond, and God has told us specifically how we are to respond. What is required? He's told us what faith and repentance look like. He's given us the means of perseverance. He's told us that not forsaking the assembling together as is the manner of some, is crucial to our making it to glory. He's told us that being in the scriptures is crucial to our making it to glory. You know, Jonathan Edwards has, one, I think, one of his best sermons. And I'm a man given to overgeneralizations, I know that. But I do think it's one of his best sermons. Talks about the ark and preparation for salvation. And if you read that sermon, you will probably be convinced you're not a Christian. When you consider, when you consider what God told Noah to do and what he did as a man moved by faith with all the specifics that God told him and he obeyed. And he obeyed by faith. And he gave the utmost diligence and care to that. You understand how serious God is about us taking seriously what he specifies about the nature of salvation. Now, I want to say this because it would not help us to just look at Noah as an example. Noah is a type of Christ. The ark is a type of Christ. That's important for us to get. Noah's father named him in faith. Just like Jesus received the name that he, re- he received, there was a striking parallel between the naming of Noah and the naming of Jesus. Noah is named literally rest because this one will give us rest from the ground that the Lord is cursed. And Jesus is the rest provider. His name is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Noah is a second Adam. He is, he is the head of a, a new humanity, typically. Uh, the language is pervasive in Genesis 6 through 8. It takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Even the nakedness of Noah and the fall of Noah after the flood and Noah falling like Adam fell. There's parallels and they're intentional and they're telling us There is a second Adam coming, and everyone with him will be saved. Everyone who was with Noah was saved. Everyone with Noah received rest. They received a typical rest from the wickedness of the world and the violence of the world. They received a typical redemption. Everyone in the ark was saved. Noah is a type of the Lord Jesus. He stands as the head of humanity with the animals, as as Adam had the animals in the garden and he was to name them and he was to be Lord over them. And God gives that repeated refrain in Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. It is God recreating the world. And here is a second Adam and the story is moving us to the last Adam. 
who is the head of the redeemed humanity. And he's not in a garden with animals. He's in the wilderness being tempted. He's got wild animals around him, Mark tells us. He is the second Noah. It's very interesting that Simon Peter tells us that the flood was baptism, that the worldwide flood was baptism, that, that Noah was saved through the waters, and that there's an antitype that now saves us, not water baptism, but the, the cleansing of our consciences by faith through the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's important for us to see that when Jesus begins his ministry, he begins it in the waters of baptism. And just as the dove came down on the ark with the olive branch saying there was peace and there was rest and there was new creation, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended on the Son of God and, and we're told that he came down on him as it were like a dove and rested upon him. Jesus is the ark. Everyone in Christ by faith is redeemed. Everyone in Jesus by faith is redeemed. And there's more redemption in the flood narrative. Now, it's interesting to me how little this has been highlighted in church history um, and how often it's been skewed when you look at the cute little pictures and the little stuffed animals of the ark. There's always two of every animal with the giraffe. The giraffe's always sticking his head out the furthest. Everybody that does these loves giraffes, obviously. <laughs> Obsessed with giraffes. And, uh, and you've got the two of every animal around that little stuffed animal. And yet the narrative says that there were two clean and seven unclean of every kind. And what's the point of that? Why? Why mention that? Well, you understand, don't you, as you read the rest of the scripture and as Israel comes to understand more of God's redeeming plan and and saving purposes that those animals would represent Jew and Gentile, the clean and the unclean. In the book of Acts, we see that's broken down in, in the vision of Peter's sheet coming down from heaven that God says no longer are the Gentiles unclean, but they're grafted in and made one and a new Israel redeemed humanity. But throughout all of the Old Testament redemptive history, the clean and the unclean were showing that God was going to set a people apart for himself. In a sense, the whole of redemptive history is in the ark. The story of the Jews and the Gentiles. The sacrificial system. Where did all the little lambs come from that were offered up on the altars? Where did the bulls come from? Where did the sacrifices come in the Old Testament that prefigured the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? They came from the animals that Noah brought through on the ark. And God is showing that all of the pieces of redemptive history are being put into place. And then if you step back further, what you see is that the ark is like an acorn and it has all of the pieces of the new creation in it and that God is there in the ark. Very interesting, God tells Noah, come into the ark. God's in the ark. I don't know if you've ever seen that. He actually says, come into the ark. Some translations get it wrong. They say, go. But God says, come into the ark. And God shuts the door. God is there with the typical new creation. And everything about the flood narrative is pointing us to the consummation. It's eschatology. It's pointing us to the end. And it's showing the purpose and the plan of God. And it's, it's saying everything else you're going to read about in the scriptures, all the unfolding of everything that God does from Genesis to Revelation is culminating in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And that's where we're moving if we're in Christ. That's 
our hope of making it there. Our hope is to make it there and to be in glory and to dwell in a, in a renewed cosmic temple with God. That's heaven. What are we going to do in heaven? Who cares? It's a cosmic temple with God. Really? You care about whether you're going to eat food or not? I want to be in a cosmic temple with Jesus and see how he unfolded all of these plans and, and all of the mysteries that he packed into these early chapters of his revelation. There's another significant fact to this, is that in saving Noah, he was going to bring the Redeemer. If we can say this reverently, no Noah, no Jesus. If Noah doesn't get saved, the Redeemer doesn't come, God's promise of Genesis 3.15 fails, there's no hope of redemption, there's no cross, there's no final salvation, there's no... There's no people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language standing before the throne. Interestingly, a throne that has a rainbow around it. Isn't that fascinating? Revelation 4. The throne on which Jesus sits has a rainbow around it. No Noah, no Jesus. How important is the flood account to your life? Let me say this as reverently as I can this morning. You cannot even understand your life Apart from this, you were in the ark with Noah. You were in the ark with Noah. The totality of God's purposes in redemptive history, his covenant not to destroy the world again. What's the point of that? Because God was going to redeem a people. But let me say this this morning. The judgment, the judgment that fell on that world and overtook that world is the greatest symbol and type of the final judgment, not with water, but with fire. And the scriptures repeatedly move us there. And they say, just like that judgment was warned and pending, and even as men ignored it as they do today, there is a judgment coming. There is a judgment day coming. And there is only one way of escape, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by intellectual assent. You know, it's remarkable to me that... People saw the way of salvation in Noah's day. They saw the ark with their eyes. People saw Jesus. Transport yourself back to Israel and think, if I had lived in the days of Jesus and I saw him and I heard him and talked about him, that doesn't mean that we trust him. That's not faith. That's sight. And yet there is a way of salvation in the Lord Jesus. You know, my my dad, um, many years ago said something to me that has really impacted me over the years. I I have a family member who's still not a believer, and my mom and my dad, um, by the way, greatest thing I can say about my mom is that she cared for this individual's salvation the way she did, and they would often go and visit and witness and plead with this person to trust Christ. And, um, And this family member's heart is sadly still very hardened to the gospel, very indifferent, very calloused, knows a lot, knows a lot of truth, was in a monastery for years and reads a lot. And my dad finally said to this individual, you know, there was a day when men didn't want to hear God's word anymore. They didn't want to hear his word anymore. And he said, so God removed that word from them. He said, but you know who did want to hear? 
And my family member said, who? And he said, the animals. Because it's impossible physically for Noah to have traveled over either a unified continent or multiple continents and gather all these animals. God obviously brought animals. And the the text says the Lord brought them to Noah, just like he brought them to Adam. And my dad said to this family member, you know, there was a day when men didn't want to hear God's word anymore, but the animals did. And they, he brought them to Noah and they got in the ark and then he shut the door. And then God shut the door. You know, that little detail, I think Jesus alludes to it when he gives the parables in Matthew, speaking about the wedding feast and men being invited to the wedding feast. And, and then he says, now shut the door. There is a day coming when the door will be shut. And what we need, all of us in this room need, is to examine our hearts and say, am I listening to God's word? Am I believing God's word? Am I believing that God is a just God who will judge this world in righteousness? Am I believing that my only hope is in Jesus Christ? Am I living as one who is trusting Jesus? There is a day coming when God is going to shut the door, and it will be too late. I want to remind you of that statement. Most men will die with or without the faith by which they lived. 120 years, they heard about the impending judgment, and they mocked, and they were indifferent, and they went on with their lives as if nothing mattered. Now, I know this morning that what the Lord wants from us is that all of us would say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, hide me in your son. Here's the beautiful thing. Here's the gospel. How is Noah saved? The flood waters of God's wrath crashed down around that ark. The flood waters of God's wrath crushed down around that ark for more than half a year, crashing down around that ark. And when that water finally subsides, everyone in that thing that bore that wrath externally, that took that wrath on itself, were saved. And that's the way the gospel works. Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. He took all the judgment. It all The flood waters of God's wrath overwhelmed the Lord Jesus and destroyed him. And everybody in him is safe. Everybody in Jesus is safe. This is why I think the New Testament gives us the idea of union with Christ 150 times. In Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in the Lord Jesus? If you are, you are safe. There is no wrath. You have already passed through the judgment. You will make it to glory. You will be in that cosmic temple with Jesus if you are in Christ. I hope that you'll examine yourselves today. I hope that you'll ask, am I living a life of faith like Noah? I hope that you will look to the same Christ to whom he looked. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that these are weighty things and we need them to be weighty. We pray that you would remove um, complacency and indifference from the hearts of everyone present here who might be indifferent to these things. We pray that you would give us a, a seriousness and help us to understand the gravity of these things. We pray that you would also help us to understand the greatness of the salvation that we have in Jesus, that he is the ark. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily and that you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that we might know that we are safe and redeemed in you. 
Father, we pray that you would give us both sobriety and joy this morning. We pray that you would increase our faith. We pray that you would make us be a people that long for the new heavens and the new earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.